As we've made our way through the trial of Jesus, we have seen every authority figure that encountered Jesus was exposed as evil. And at the same time, Jesus was revealed to be holy and righteous. Despite the enemy's attack, Jesus, over and over, is shown to be innocent. The time of evil is growing in intensity as we make our way to the cross. And today we will see in our passage the anger and hatred towards Jesus only grow stronger as he gets closer and closer to his sentence of death. We saw Jesus was condemned by his own people because he affirmed that he was the Christ, the Son of God. The divine irony was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. So they condemned Jesus for blasphemy, while in fact they were blaspheming God by condemning Him. The guilty were the accusers. And the accuser, the accused rather, was innocent. In our court system today, it would be like the judge and the prosecution being the ones guilty of a great crime, doing a mock trial to shift the blame to an innocent party. Do you see how as we go along through the passage and as we make our way through the cross, to the cross, everything that appears to be one way from the world's perspective, the opposite is true. And again, as we think of the concept of the Son of God dying, at first glance we think, God dying? That makes no sense. But in God's sovereign plan, what appears to be confusing or doesn't make sense to the world is actually glorious and a way for us to be saved. Today we see the trial of Jesus turns the Gentile phase turns to the Gentile phase of the trial. The Sanhedrin, that is the great court of the Jews during that day, become the, the prosecution for this Gentile court. They literally accused one of their own for a crime they were committing. They accused him of trying to rule and trying to... Uh, um, bring about chaos, and they then do it. They turned Jesus into the Gentile ruling government. And they began to accuse Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor in Jerusalem that day. However, despite their evil plot to have Jesus killed, we see the truth of Jesus' innocence was still revealed. In fact, we see today the truth was revealed from the most unlikely of sources. It kind of reminds me of the events surrounding Balaam. Y'all remember reading in your Bible the story of Balaam and his donkey? Uh, Balaam the evil diviner. Uh, the one that used to seek omens or evil visions from demons. As recorded in Numbers 22 in the Old Testament. Balaam was known for seeking these evil visions for demons as Numbers 24.1 states, I found this the other day. I found out the other day that Balaam was actually an Edomite from the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Balaam was a wicked man who was called by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. But God stepped in and had the evil Balaam bless Israel and prophesy of Israel's victory instead of cursing them. You remember the story? Balak, Balak wanted Balaam to curse God and his people, but Balaam refused and instead blessed the God, blessed God and his people. So God used this evil man Balaam to announce to his people he would be victorious. Remember, in the story there was a little story or a preview of events to come before it really takes uh, place, the whole events unfold, Balaam's own donkey, y'all know the story, right? He, the Balaam's own donkey sees the angel of the Lord in the path, 
and pushes Balaam up against the side of the wall and hurts his foot. And the idea is, is here that we see the donkey itself is the one that reveals the Lord to Balaam, the evil one. It again points to this fact that God can use even a donkey to reveal himself to the world. And it's almost like a little preview of what Balaam was going to do. He was going to reveal God to Moab, the king of Moab, and the Edomites. Okay? So what's really interesting is this is exactly what happens here. We have two donkey-like figures that are actually going to pronounce that Jesus is innocent. He's the good one. He's the Christ. Whereas all the other ones that were supposed to be God's people are the opposite. And they're accusing the Messiah. God uses the least likely people on earth to acknowledge and affirm that Jesus was the Christ. We are once again going to see God does not need his people to reveal himself. Now that's a wild thought. I want you to think about that. Meditate on that for a second. Did you know that God doesn't need you? (laughs) But thankfully... God did reveal himself anyway. Even in his trial, Jesus is going to be shown to be that glorious Messiah all of us should follow. Even in the worst possible moment, when all of God's people are turning on Jesus, Jesus is still shining through and revealing himself. Therefore, we should joyfully exalt Jesus and not reject him like his own people did during his day. The affirmation of Jesus' identity came from the two pagan rulers of Palestine during Jesus' day. Two very wicked men. Both men had sentenced countless Jewish people to die by crucifixion. One even had John the Baptist, Herod, had John the Baptist beheaded. However, in our passage, both of these men affirmed Jesus' innocence and didn't want him crucified. However, at the end of both, in, at, at the end, both of these wicked rulers show their true colors and also reject Jesus. We're at the halfway point of Jesus' unjust trial. He has been mocked. He has reject, been rejected, falsely accused by his own people, and yet he continues on. The level of rejection Jesus experienced would have crushed anyone who lived for people's approval. If Jesus was a man-pleaser, he would have given up long ago. It was as if everyone in the world hated him. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples. All of the other disciples had fled in fear. One of Jesus' closest and dearest friends had denied him three times, and Jesus had seen him do it the last time. Then the so-called religious leaders of his very own people, had broken every rule of justice to rid themselves of Jesus. They had bribed even unsavory witnesses to falsely accuse him. There's no comparison for us. None of us have even been close to be being rejected like this by this many people in this short a period of time. And even if we had been rejected by people, it's never been to the point of spitefully seeking our death for something we didn't do. Anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. Maybe somebody's wanted you dead, but they have not accused you and brought you to trial for doing something you didn't do. Or being someone that you really were, a good person, a righteous person. Christ, we are sinful. Often we do get accused of things, but often what we're accused of are things we did. Maybe not then, but previous in our life. Again, I want to remind you folks that we still, we're not even close to Jesus, are we? Plus, Jesus was the only one who has ever faced death and been perfectly innocent of any sin. He was innocent. So we come to the Gentile portion of the trial. 
The Gentile portion of the trial breaks down into three stages. Jesus was accused before Pilate in verses 1 to 5. Jesus was accused before Herod in verses 6 to 12. And Jesus was accused again before Pilate, then condemned in verses 13 through 25. Again, Pilate and Herod were the pagan rulers of Rome and Palestine. However, they were actually more accurate and just than God's own people during this time. In this stage of Jesus' trial, we will once again see that Scripture is fulfilled. In Isaiah 53, 7-8, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Boy, that is a perfect picture of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, isn't it? Spoken 700 years before. So let's continue our look at the trial of Jesus so that we will honor our Lord properly. Again, if you want your marriage to be better, (laughs) then pursue a better understanding of what Jesus endured for you. If you want to avoid worry and depression, then contemplate all the things that Jesus endured for you. Who we think on determines how we live. If our thoughts savor Jesus and His work, our lives will be different. You never hear very rarely from this pulpit seven ways to make your marriage better or seven ways to be a better parent. What you're going to hear is verse by verse the glories of Christ on display. For I know when you look at Him and meditate on Him and embrace and savor Him, your marriages will improve. Our problem is that we want to clean us up on the outside instead of analyzing the glories of our Savior that will cause us to sacrificially love one another. Uh, Again, I, uh, I just want to remind you, your relationships are supposed to be based totally on sacrifice. You're supposed to be laying down your life for other people. Does that come naturally for anybody in the room? I want to lay down my life for people. I want to just die for you, my wife. I want to do whatever. Can I make your coffee? Can I wash the dishes? Can I help you in any way? Do we think this way naturally, men? No, we don't. Unless... Our eyes are firmly fixed on the glories of Christ who died for us. Then it's like, what can I do to lay down my life for you? That's why we studied the gospel. That's why we analyze what he went through on the trials. That's why we meditate and spend hour after hour looking at maybe only five verses or 12 verses so that we will bask in the glory of our Savior and what He did for us so that we will then lay down our lives for others. Do you get this? That's why I'm doing it this way. This is why our church is about verse by verse through the Bible. We want to see Christ. Let's savor Him. So let's continue our look at the trial. Jesus was accused by Pilate in verses 1 through 5. The wicked accused Him first, we see in verses 1 to 2. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Jesus was once again falsely accused. And all of the Sanhedrin come together in unanimous support of his death. They want him together to die. This was the pinnacle of their rebellion, up to this point at least, until they cry out crucify in just a matter of hours. The accusers were God's own people, the Israelites, the Jews, who were supposed to be 
the light to the Gentile world. Do you understand how amazingly backwards this is? The one that Moses had told was coming. The one that Isaiah had told was coming for the people. They were there and they were saying, kill him. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentile world. They had opportunity. Now they were going to the Roman ruler. They were going to present their own Messiah to the Roman ruler. And how were they presenting him? With lies and accusations. Do you see the divine twist here? The ones who were righteous were actually wicked. And the one who was accused of wickedness was actually righteous. They were instead denying politically their own Messiah and publicly. They were rejecting and reviling their own God. And they were falsely accusing their own Lord. They were exposing their own hypocrisy in the moment. And it would be shocking to us, ladies and gentlemen, but the Old Testament revealed this tendency, didn't it? It's shown this tendency over and over. Israel had shown this hypocrisy from the beginning. They had rejected God for a golden calf. Are you all as shocked as I am when I read those passages? All that you say we will do. He delays a little bit. Let's make a golden calf. This is the God that delivered us from Egypt. This is what they're doing again. They're doing the same thing. They complained as God had fed them every day. Boy, is that not our country. They had failed to possess all of the land that God had told them to possess. They had embraced the Canaanite gods. They had rejected God over and over again for 1,500 years. Oh, folks, here once again, they were only doing what they had shown a propensity to do. Now they were standing face to face with their own Messiah, the King, and they were accusing Him for the purpose of having Him killed. By the way, Something that boils my blood is when someone proclaims they're a Christian but lives like the world and denies the truth found in the Bible. Listen, when, when the JWs come to my door, I don't rejoice for them. I, I cry for them. They need God. They are rejecting God and His holiness. Here were the professing religious leaders of Yahweh falsely accusing Yahweh incarnate. And they give a threefold accusation. Notice, they accuse Jesus of inciting a riot. We found this man misleading our nation. They accuse Jesus here of inciting the people against Rome. Other times in history, people accused Israel's righteous leaders of misleading the people. Pharaoh did this with Moses. He said, they're just trying to get people up in an uproar, incite them. These are my people, Pharaoh had said. Ahab accused Elijah of doing the same thing in 1 Kings 18, 17. This was one of the common ways people accused their leaders to get them in trouble. They accused them of causing chaos and disunity. The Roman government wanted a peaceful Jewish people, not chaos and uproar. By the way, this line of accusation is still used today sometimes. Conservative, Bible-believing Christians are sometimes accused of creating disunity because we are intolerant. If we stand for the truth, we will sometimes be falsely accused of causing disunity that's a fact but i want to remind you of something very very important we must make sure our motives and our methods are righteous as we stand for the truth boldly for we don't want to be accused correctly we want to be accused for doing what is right 
Now, I find it so interesting to me that Jesus had done the very opposite thing to what they had accused him of doing. Jesus had done, he had done, he had gone out of his way not to have a big political uprising. He had done just the opposite. He had presented a case for living in the world as a gentle and submissive person, a humble man. And this same way of living was promoted after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Paul stated, states this in Romans 12. Listen, Romans 12, 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, what are you supposed to do? Say, you good for nothing, you're hungry because you have rejected God. Notice, no, that's not what it says. It says feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, this is a different way of thinking. This is how Jesus really was. He was a man that promoted gentleness and being at peace with all men. But again, if we're living gentle, peaceful lives for Christ, proclaiming him boldly, we could be accused of this same thing. If you look over at Acts 16, that's exactly what happens to Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, when they were proclaiming the gospel, and remember the slave girl is freed from their, the demon, and when they had brought them, that is Paul and Silas, to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not, not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. Again, beloved, make sure... Listen closely. If you are accused of this, it is not true. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you're giving the gospel and boldly proclaiming the gospel just to make waves, so that you look like this, and so that you can change the course of things by yourself, you've missed it. You've missed it. It's not about trying to change the course of the world by yourself. You can't force the world to change. It is our job to proclaim the glory of Christ in a peaceful and gentle yet bold way and if accused to accept it humbly, not returning revile for revile. Do you see that is a tightrope? Would everybody agree that's a tightrope to walk? Who did it? Christ did. He's the one. And we see it it, at its pinnacle in this trial. Man, I don't know about you guys. But Herod had killed John the Baptist. We'll get to this in a second, but think about this. Jesus grieved when John the Baptist died. Don't you think he could have thrown out a couple of barbs there? You killed my friend. You're going to pay for this. He didn't say a word in front of Herod. He uttered not even one word. How about that for restraint? How about that for holding your tongue? Better hold your tongue that well? Wow. We boldly proclaim Christ not just to be noticed or to make an uproar or to cause things to change by our own strength. We boldly proclaim Jesus with gentleness in order to see people come to know the saving gospel. Not to make us big. It's not about us. We see this in Paul's life. We see this in the Christian's life after Jesus, right? This is the way we're supposed to be. I think sometimes we... We fall into the trap. We see in our country, in our culture, we see the ones that are winning are the ones that are the loudest. You ever heard that? You see that? Say, they're winning. 
The homosexual agenda, it's winning. There's only 20% or 15% that are fully there, but they are loud and it's winning. So what we need to do is be louder. Scream louder. No. No. Proclaim Christ. Live for Him. Honor the King. And then when they accuse us for, of loving Christ and standing for the truth, humbly accept it and not return revile for revile. It's different, isn't it? It's a different thinking, isn't it? This is Christ-like thinking. They accuse Jesus of keeping people from paying taxes and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't respond to these? There's no record of him responding to this. Why not? Have you ever been falsely accused and said, well, let me just give, you know, let me just say, look, look I mean, that was just a lie. I didn't do that. He didn't say anything. That was a lie, wasn't it? Luke 20 to 26, or 2020 to 26, proves that they were lying. Their plot was to destroy Jesus at any cost, but Jesus didn't say not to pay their taxes. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Again, it would almost be laughable if it were not so tragic. These were the representatives and leaders of God's people, the Jews, and they are literally lying to rid themselves of their own God. They are lying. Now, we just want justice, don't we? How many of you just want justice? We just want justice, right? When was the last time we said, I just want to serve God, even if the world is against us unjustly? Wow, that's totally contrary to the way we're taught in our society, aren't we? In our ta- aren't we told to seek what is fair? <laughs> what is just? Is this just in the trial? No, it's not just. This is a lie. And so what Jesus did was, is he made sure that all of his disciples came after the trial and explained, this is all a lie. We didn't. That was figurative. I was rhetorically. You get that? No. He just accepted it. How many of you have ever been lied to or lied about and you just said, you know what, I'm going to just let it go? Anybody? <laughs> she lied about me. That's not fair. That's unjust. He says nothing. Oh, but the Bible says I'm supposed to accuse my, you know, go to my brother, not accuse, but confront. I'm supposed to confront my brother or sister when they lie about me. If they're lying about me, come on, let's go. Hey, Matthew 18, let's do it. Get together. Hey, and he didn't listen. He's still lying, so I'm going to get me another brother, and we're going to go really confront this dude. What did Jesus do? Oh, but give me my rights, right? I want my rights. If we had our rights, ladies and gentlemen, we'd all be in hell right now. If I got what I deserved, we'd all be roasting in hell right now. And here is the only one that was ever righteous not standing up for his rights. Wow. Here the Sanhedrin was accusing Jesus falsely because they believed he was blaspheming. The truth was Jesus was God incarnate. So they were in fact blaspheming. They were lying about God. 
They accused Jesus of claiming to be a king. This was an accusation that was meant to play on Pilate's political rulership. On a theological level, the claims are true, which is amazing. He said he was the Christ, a king, and he was. But when it came to the world's understanding of the day, it was not what Jesus sought. As a matter of fact, when the people sought to make him their political king with wrong motives, look over at John 6. John 6, 15, it says, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him a king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, he saw their motives. He saw their political motives. They just wanted somebody that would rule in a way that they could defeat Rome. So Jesus was the Christ. But their definition of the Christ was wrong and a lie. Beloved, Jesus never presented himself to be a threat to the government. That's a wild thought. Now I want you to think on that for a second. The government was never really threatened by Jesus. Here you have Herod and Pilate, and neither one of them looked at him and said, Man, I'm worried. Let's kill him. They knew what was going on. Herod said, I can't wait to see him and rejoice when he saw him. Herod didn't, it wasn't threatened by Jesus. How about that for, boy, that would blow the conservative right political agenda movement out of the water, wouldn't it? Does that not just go totally contrary? Now again, again, be careful. I'm not saying don't stand for the truth. But when you stand for the truth, stand with right motives. Why do we stand for the truth? So people will come to know the glory of Jesus and be saved. But as we will see, even the pagan governor, Pilate, saw through their accusations to their evil motives. And he was not threatened in the least by Jesus and his followers. Jesus was in a real strange twist, exactly who they accused him of being. The Christ, the King of the Jews. But at the same time, this meant he was definitely not deserving of death. They accused him of being the king of the Jews. This was the charge that they did not, that made it sure that he should not die. This charge, because it was really true, should have resulted in worship. Do you understand? He proclaims to be this, and he's shown that he's always been truth, so therefore let's all fall together and worship. What should have happened at the trial was this here's Jesus. He's our king. Let's worship together on our faces. Pilate, come on. But the opposite was true. Notice Pilate's questions, though. The least likely affirms Jesus. The wicked had accused Jesus. Now the least likely affirmed Jesus. So Pilate asked him, saying, You are the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate's question again was worded assuming that it was true. And when it's worded there, it says, You are the king of the Jews. It would probably be better translated. Your translations might say, Are you the king of the Jews? I think it's better translated, You yourself are the king of the Jews? Question mark. It's as if Pilate's saying, You're? You are the king of the Jews? That's the way I get it. It's as if he's saying, in effect, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, this guy is the king of the Jews? But it so fits with Isaiah 53. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. Right? It's as if we get this picture of Jesus as this muscular cut man that just... All the ladies would woo over, right? And all the kings would fall on their face and go, Oh, man! I don't think so. 
just a normal Jewish guy. You know, maybe he was rugged enough. I mean, he did live on the cross for a while. I mean, he took a big beating that killed many people before. And But Pilate wasn't intimidated by him. You are the king of the Jews? Jesus says, in effect, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in him. Pilate then responded, I find no guilt in him? Again, the pagan ruler knew it. They knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody knew it. Jesus was different. There was no one like him. Jesus was the king of the Jews, and everyone knew it, but his people wanted him dead. So when Pilate declares Jesus' innocence... What do they do? (laughs) The wicked continued to accuse him. Look, verse 5, but they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee even as far as this place. While Pilate pronounced innocence when he did, the accusers ramp up their attack. They say, he has spread his divisive message all the way from Galilee to Judea where they were. With this next accusation, Pilate saw a way out of dealing with his obvious phony trial. Pilate saw through it. Matthew 27, I'll talk about this next week a little bit, but Pilate gets it. He says, they just want him dead because they envy him. They envy his popularity is what Matthew 27 says. Pilate sees it, man. It's as if This wicked pagan king has two parties in front of him and he says, you guys are the bad ones. He's good. He's fine. He's innocent. What are you doing? By the way, some of the greatest ways for us to demonstrate the glory of God is when we don't give a defense. When we don't try to give this great all-out thing when we just humbly accept it. You know, maybe we say one thing. You know, God is watching me. and I don't want to mess up. So I don't think that's me. God is my witness. That's it. Man, we've had some really good discussions with some of the college students recently about being accused falsely. You know, you're walking down the road and police officer rides up to you and says, Hey, y'all up to no good? Well, as soon as we ramp it up and try to give a defense, that's often the time that we're accused more. Y'all understand what I'm getting at here? Maybe just being humble like Jesus. That's what we need to do. (laughs) Never forget. Y'all might have heard this story. I think I want to do it anyway because it's really good for the kids. In my wickedness, I remember in Spanish class one time cheating on a test. I remember this story. I was cheating on a test. And I had a cheat sheet. Yep. I was a liar. I had the cheat sheet, put it up on my desk, and was copying down the answers for the Spanish test. Got it all done, finished my paper, turned it over, put the cheat sheet back in my desk. I said, man, I, I did it. There was a substitute that day. The regular teacher wasn't there. And he uh, he was giving these kids a hard time. And I looked down on the floor, and my cheat sheet, cheat, cheat sheet had fallen out on the floor. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I reached down and picked up that cheat sheet and put it back in. And he says, hey, come here. What are you doing? <laughs> Nothing. What do you got there? <coughs> Nothing. <laughs> he caught me. But I hadn't cheated at that moment. He had missed it. You didn't catch me before you were over there. I didn't say that. I just got louder and louder and louder. I wasn't cheating. I wasn't cheating. I wasn't cheating. I wasn't cheating. I promised I wasn't cheating. Then, I wasn't saying the then, but I wasn't cheating then. And the latter I got, the worse it got. 
before you knew it, I had a zero on the test and was suspended three days for making a bad gesture to the teacher. Yeah, you know me now. That's why all my relatives, when I go talk to them about Jesus, they're like, you? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when we're accused, let's be like Christ. Let's be humble. God's sovereign. Jesus knew the Father was in control of all the events. He knew he was going to die. He trusted the Father and he gave no defense. It speaks volumes when we just shut our mouths. So we move to the next stage of the Gentile trial. Y'all enjoying this? This is a neat passage, isn't it? What a Christ we serve, huh? What a king. Jesus was accused before Herod. Pilate passed the case to Herod Antipas. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also was in Jerusalem at that time. This was a compliment to Herod because Pilate affirmed Herod's authority. At the same time, it was a possible way for Pilate to get out of the possible political mess that he was in. So Pilate shifts, throws it to Herod. Now Herod, who was or who had royal blood, but did not have the full authority of a king, was known as a king in Galilee, but not over all of Palestine. This was the same Herod who, like I said, had, had John the Baptist killed. Jesus knew this man. And this man knew Jesus. Jesus knew Herod was, had been intrigued by John the Baptist, but then by, been duped by him and having him beheaded. Remember, the same thing happens with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is taken in, and he's in jail, and Herod watched over him, and then finally, because of a twist, remember, a dance, he has him beheaded. Herod was an evil man, but he was intrigued with Jesus also, we see. Herod, despite wrong motives, affirmed Jesus' identity. He said, Herod was very glad, literally rejoiced when he saw Jesus. Now, that's a wild thought. Isn't that wild? He rejoiced when he saw Jesus. Here is Herod, the guy that had John the Baptist beheaded, rejoicing that he saw Jesus. But notice the motives. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. Herod rejoiced at the opportunity to meet Jesus. His motives, however, were horrible. He was a thrill seeker. He wanted a magic show in a sense. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted a sign. Show me a miracle. Almost like wanting to go see a magician today. Herod wanted to be wild. But Jesus would have no part of this wrong motive or this sin. By the way, doesn't this, this screams the human heart? We like to be entertained, don't we? Now, often we pick the things to entertain us because they wow us. And we go, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. Let's do it. That's exactly why he wanted to see Jesus. It had nothing to do with wanting to submit to him. Trust me. He didn't want him to be his Lord. He just wanted to be entertained by Jesus. He would not stoop to use his position and authority outside the Father's will is what Jesus thought. Much like at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus would not use his power to win approval from man at the expense of fulfilling the divine plan for him. Just like in the wilderness, remember, throw yourself off of this. Or I'll give you all the kingdoms in the earth. He's not going to use his power outside of what the Father wanted him to do. Because Jesus was submitting to whatever the Father wanted. Jesus did not even speak. Again, this is amazing. This just shows how glorious our Savior is. He didn't say anything. I don't know about you guys. I can't even comprehend that. I've had this discussion with you all numerous times. I like to talk. Often it gets me in trouble. 
But when somebody falsely accused me, I even want to talk more. But the opposite happens. He was questioned numerous times and Jesus spoke not a word, nothing. Why didn't he give a defense? Why not just a little sign? Come on, just something little. The answer may be obvious to some of you. He couldn't. He had to die. He was silent before his accusers for us as we saw in Isaiah 53. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. He said nothing. Why? Why did he endure this? Why did he do this? Because he was thinking about the Father and about us. That's startling. That's shocking, isn't it? At a moment when you're accused, who is the one that you most often think about? Yourself. But Jesus said nothing because at the moment he was being accused, he was thinking of others. (sighs) Had an opportunity to talk to the men yesterday morning a little bit about true biblical ministry. What should our lives look like? We saw Paul's whole life was committed to serving others. He worked the job making tents as he went into various towns just to make enough money to live on so that he wouldn't have to get money from the ones that he was preaching the gospel to. This is a sacrificial man. Paul suffered extreme persecutions for others. He was chased often out of towns only to make his way into another town and be beaten again. Why would Paul do these things? Why would he constantly sacrifice himself and lay down his life for other people? Why was he constantly all about other people all the time? That his whole life was about serving other people all the time. Why? Because he knew this Christ. He knew Christ did that for him. I heard somebody recently say that we can't love someone until we know them. Oh, really? I disagree. I disagree. Paul would go into towns not knowing any of those people, be mocked and beaten, not knowing them at all, laying down their lives for them, sacrificed totally. Why? Because he knew Jesus, not because he knew the people. Oh, we need a change in our thinking. I think, I think all of our relationships, we pick our spouses because of what they can get us. Give me a break. You've been picking for the wrong reason. Stop. No. Believers, if you know the love of Christ, it doesn't matter who it is. You will lay your life down for other people. Why do we marry our spouses? So we can serve them. Why do we get into full-time ministry? So we can die for everybody else. This is who we know. We know Jesus. This is what he did for us. Why was he spit on? Why was he mocked? Why did he not give any words back in his trial? When he was mocked, when he was crucified, why did he continue to endure this? Why? For us. To atone for our sin. You know, we give the Israelites a hard time, don't we? We look at them and we go, He delivered you from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. I mean, He fed you from heaven daily. He gave you water out of a rock. 
and you walk around grumbling and complaining? Brothers and sisters, how much more have we been delivered from by the Messiah? Christ endured so much more for us to redeem us from our sin and the penalty we deserve. Stop grumbling and complaining. Start serving your king and others. Let's pray. Father, when we contemplate the glory of your Son and what he did for us, we are humbled. We are rendered speechless. We are in awe of your glory, Christ Jesus. We're so quick to give a defense. We're so quick, Lord, to try to stand up for our rights. We're so quick to proudly pronounce that we are something. When you, Lord Jesus... was silent as you faced your death for us. Etch this in our souls. Make this in be a part of our thinking and our mind continuously. That housewife that's at home with those children that are just ungrateful. God, I beg you, please, Lord, please etch in her heart the glory of your Son so that she will see and remember what he endured for her. For that man that works those countless hours that never seems to feel appreciation from home. God, please remind us of your son. For that single piece person that feels so rejected. No spouse for me. I'm all alone. Remind that person of Christ and what he endured for them. For that poor widow, as without her husband, she loves so much. Remind her that she has Christ, the Savior who died for her. We need you, Lord. Awaken our hearts to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.